Well, friends, another week of watching church, not church, on the screen. How are you doing with it? Uh, I know some of you actually hope it won't end. Uh, you love the fact that you're on the couch, in your trackies, it's cold and wet outside. You don't have to go talk to people. Some of you hope that this keeps going. But I know that many of us are finding it really tough. And so I just want to acknowledge that. We, uh, we can't wait to get back together and be God's people. Um, as has been mentioned, we are working on a plan to take some small steps towards us being back together. As you'll appreciate being a bigger church, it is tricky for us um, to work within all the uh, restrictions and so on. So please be patient. Uh, we do have the hope of getting back together. And here's the thing, Christianity gives us the power to be patient. Uh, see, something that is critical to human well-being is hope. Hope is what gets us out of bed in the morning. Uh, an anticipation that things will be better in the future allows us to embrace whatever comes in our present. And Christianity holds out an unrivaled hope. One where reality at its very core will be healed physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, environmentally, economically, politically, completely restored, never to break again. Christianity therefore holds out the great power to endure in the present. But, but this hope was in danger of being lost by some of the earliest followers of Jesus, which is what we find here in the letter Paul writes to the Corinthians. And we see the particular issue there in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some in the church were denying that they, as followers of Jesus, would be bodily raised to life after their, dead, their death. Now, this is different to the issue of our age. Our age is an age of scepticism that believes there is nothing more beyond this life. The material is all there is. No, no, they weren't denying the existence of an afterlife, but rather their bodily experience of it. Now, you need to remember that Christianity was born into a Greek world of thought, which was very different to what we have. Uh, that is, the ideal after death was thought of to actually be rid of your body so that it was weighing you down. And, and now your soul might be free to soar to the realms of the gods. And so some in Corinth, a, a Christian church, appear to have thought that their future would be something like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Just some kind of wispy, immaterial future. And this is so wrong, with so much at stake, that Paul launches into an extended attack on this thinking. And let me take you through quite a chunk of it this morning under three parts, three big things that the resurrection means for our hope. Number one, the resurrection means that the gospel saves. See, he begins this section by going, all right, Christians, let, let's play out the implications of you having no future resurrection. Paul says, let me give you seven of them. Number one, it means the gospel is fake news. Now, the gospel is not something about you. It's not something in you. It's not something that you do. The gospel is news of events that happened in the past. 
It's, it's the news of what God has done in the person and work of Jesus, particularly in his death and in his resurrection. And we looked at what this gospel news includes last week, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to many. But, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, that is, if you Christians in the future won't be raised, then not even Christ has been raised in the past. Do you see what he's saying here? If you don't have a bodily future resurrection, then Christ was not raised from the dead. You believe in a hoax. The gospel is fake news. Notice the connection there between what happened in the past and what is destined to happen, bound to happen in the future. But Paul is saying, if you Christians don't have a bodily resurrection hope, then Christ was not raised. Which tells you that bound up in the event of the historical resurrection of Jesus were future events that must happen. Pregnant in Jesus' resurrection was the future resurrection of all those who would be in him. It's like the dominoes effect. The last domino only falls over if the first one falls over and you've got the right gap between all of them. Paul is saying the first domino has fallen over in the resurrection of Jesus and God has got the perfect gap between every domino. The last one will fall, must fall. If it doesn't fall, it's because the first one never fell. There's the first implication. You cannot have a historical resurrection of Jesus and not have one for Christians in their future. Implication number two, verse 14, preaching is useless. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, says Paul. And that tells you something very important about what apostolic preaching is and isn't. It is about the person and work of Jesus. It's about the gospel. The apostles weren't interested in the felt needs of their listeners. Their preaching wasn't about five steps on how to make friends and influence people. They didn't give a rip about that stuff. Their preaching was about Jesus, about a real man in time and space, what he did and the implications of it. Paul had no interest in motivational pep talks. To him, that preaching would be useless. This is such a, a big window into what Christianity is and isn't. It's not just a bunch of tips for how to have a better week, how to go at your job, how to get through coronavirus. It, it's about Jesus. And so if there is no resurrection, his preaching was useless. His ministry was useless. Implication number three. Not only is his preaching useless, so is your faith, Christians. He says it again in Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now again, this helpfully tells us what faith is and isn't. Faith is not some spiritual substance that religious people have that allows you to live courageously. You know, as though the, the athlete is born with speed and agility. The artist is born with flair and creativity. The religious person is born with faith. No. Faith is looking away from yourself to another, to an object. And saving faith puts its confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. If there is none, then your faith is in nothing. 
thin air. In fact, worse, it's in a lie. Fourth implication. Paul says, verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Now, this actually gives you a window into Paul's deepest fears. See, what is the most horrific thought for Paul? It's not that dream that you have where you went to school without your pants on. It's that he would actually stand before God a liar. That he would stand before God without integrity, particularly concerned with what he has said about God. Paul, Paul is so concerned that he is witnessing to the truth that he is speaking as a spokesman of God. That was back in chapter 14, verse 37. He's so concerned about that, that if the resurrection didn't happen, then as he goes around the world saying, I met this resurrected Jesus, he's a liar. He's a fraud. And by implication, God is a liar too, since Paul is God's spokesman. Implication number five, we are still in our sin. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. The gospel deals with the fact that we have loved sin instead of loving God. We have loved life according to how we want to live it, not what God says. We've refused to joyfully submit our lives to him and instead sat on the throne of our own lives. Which is why the gospel is so amazingly and unexpectedly good news. Because God comes to deal with that, but not in the way that we deserve. We deserve death, we deserve his judgment, we deserve eternity in hell. But instead he comes to deal with that punishment in himself, in his son Jesus. To to swallow the judgment that we deserve in himself to die with it. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2. It's trusting in Jesus' death in our place that we are forgiven of all our sins. Whatever you have done, whatever you have failed to do, you can stand before a holy God forgiven. How? By trusting in the death of Jesus. But how do you know that that's what happened as yet another man was crucified by the Romans? The resurrection. The resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus' death was sufficient for sins. That sin can be removed from sinners as far as the east is from the west. But without resurrection... Jesus' death was just a tragic end to another would-be Messiah. There is no forgiveness. In fact, the thing that Paul said about the Corinthians back in chapter 6, that they were sexually immoral, they were idolaters, they'd, been, um, uh, they'd had sex with men, they'd been thieves, they'd been greedy, they'd been drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. But he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then his death didn't deal with those things. You are still filthy, you are still cut off from God, and you will stand before him guilty. Implication number six. Dead believers are lost. They're gone. Verse 18. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. You can forget being reunited with loved ones who, was, who have died as believers in Christ. They are lost to you forever. The preciousness of that relationship, it's as if it never existed. But worse, they're not only lost to you, they are lost to God forever since they stood before him still in their sins. Implication number seven, verse 19, Christianity is pathetic. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now come back to this verse in a moment. But he goes, hey, Christians who deny a future bodily resurrection, let me give you all these implications of your belief. Do you think, do you think Paul cares about the resurrection as a, an optional extra? Professional golf has come back in the scene now. I don't really care about golf, but you know, I saw it on the news. The PGA Tour is back, but because of COVID, there's no crowds. And so they were talking about how it's just, it's just not the same. It's lacking the energy. It's lacking the vibrance. But it's still golf, right? If you take away the ball from the game of golf, what have you got? Nothing. Just a long, boring walk. Yeah. If you take away from Christianity the ability for us to physically meet, if you take away singing, if you take away the ability for us to greet each other with a holy handshake, we are the lesser for it, but Christianity remains. But if you take away the resurrection, you have no Christianity. You have no gospel. But, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul can't go on any longer. Guys, he has been raised. Therefore, the opposite to those seven implications are true. The gospel is not fake news. It is true. Christ's resurrection is a preview of our future resurrection. You cannot have his without the other. The faithful preaching of Christ's death and resurrection is purposeful and it's powerful. And that is such an encouragement to a mug like me. I got nothing to say except for the gospel. The apostles, they are trustworthy. They haven't created some clever religion to get some. They are trustworthy. Our faith that looks away from ourselves and to a saviour, it saves our sins are forgiven. We stand before God today holy. Nothing that you could do today or tomorrow that would change that. And we will be reunited with loved ones who have died in Christ. That becomes especially sweet, doesn't it, the longer that we've lived, which is why it's so good to hear a little bit of Ken's story there, who's been following Jesus longer than I've been alive and has tasted loss and loss and loss. We will be reunited with loved ones again. And Christianity is not to be pitied, but rather to be a Christian, you will find yourself on the right side of history. The resurrection means the gospel is true. It saves. Do you know this for yourself? Do you know the salvation that God offers? 
because it's only for those who would repent, who would turn back and put their trust in Jesus. All of this could be yours. Have you done that? And as was mentioned, we celebrate with those who did it last week. And if you haven't, do that today. There's the first big thing that the resurrection means for our hope. The gospel is true. Number two, the resurrection means that your best life comes later. There's been quite a bit of chat amongst Christians about a documentary on Netflix called The American Gospel. So I, uh, I checked it out and, uh, and I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I got something that was actually quite surprising. Um, struck me uh, in three different ways. Firstly, it's amazing that Netflix shows it, that still has it on. They've just cancelled um, Gone with the Wind. And yet this documentary, which preaches hell unless you repent and turn to Christ, remains staggering that Netflix is showing it. Number two, it was so striking because the gospel is so beautiful. And just to, just to hear the gospel proclaimed, I just found myself, it was amazing. And thirdly, and particularly, as it was held alongside the horrors of false teaching. See, this documentary is particularly concerned to push into the prosperity gospel, uh, which, which these presenters who are American Christians are so ashamed to belong to a country that has exported um, prosperity teaching to the world, which teaches that you can have health, wealth, happiness now, all in Jesus' name. That if you would come to Jesus, life will be absolutely sweet. This is a brand of Christianity that disturbingly appeals to the sin in people rather than calling people from sin. Joel Osteen, a prosperity preacher, a big name of our day, has a book called Your Best Life Now. It's true that Paul and the New Testament has a lot to say about the great blessings that are ours as we turn to Christ now. But what is undeniable of the teaching of Jesus, of Paul, and particularly this chapter, is that your best life comes later. See, come back to verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are to be pitied most. Where's the emphasis there that Paul says, if Christianity is only for this life, we are pathetic, which tells you what? The, the emphasis, the goal, the heart, the hope of Christianity is in another life, in the future, in another world, in an age to come. And any expectation or teaching otherwise is deluded and dangerous. It's demonic. It's demonic. Uh, to, to preach that if you are sick, if you would come to Jesus, you will be made physically well now is a demonic lie. For now, we live in a world marked by Adam. Verse 22, for as in Adam, all die. This life, this age, no matter the culture, the politics, the technology, is marked by death. How could you possibly have your best life now in a world that is 
marked by death. Any wealth that you make, it'll go to someone else. Any health that you have, it'll slip through your fingers. It will give out. Any happiness that you enjoy will be terrorised by the loss of loved ones and just the brokenness of this world that you cannot dodge. Any achievements to your name will be mocked by the grave. Well, the gospel, the biblical gospel, answers all of these problems. But notice when. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes... It's a reference to his second coming, his return, those who belong to him. If you have, for whatever reason, come to Jesus thinking that every piece of your life will be healed, will be well, will be sweet right now, you've not come to the Jesus of the Bible. I mean, Jesus said himself, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. But take heart, says Jesus, for I have overcome the world. Now, remember the problem that we've seen for the Corinthians as we've been working through the letter. They, they had no place for the future. They thought that they had arrived spiritually. And so Paul drives home the point to, to them that people who are truly in touch with the Spirit are people who are long for a day not yet here and who long for a day that actually can't come until something so decisive happens, the return of Jesus. A day that will usher in a whole new experience of being redeemed humanity. And bound to that hope is glorified bodies. Glorified bodies. That's what he moves on to in verse 35 and following. Let me, let me touch on it without running through every verse with you. He's, he's turning to the question, well, how will the dead be raised? With what kind of body will they come? It, it seems that one of the reasons the Corinthians, some of them denied a future resurrection, is they were just imagining a corpse that had gone down into the ground, just being brought out of the ground as just a corpse that would walk around. Well, who would want that? And so Paul turns to deal with this and he uses an agricultural illustration of a seed that's buried in the ground. Now the seed represents our body, our corpse, as we die, as we are laid in the ground, either buried or cremated. But he uses the illustration to say that just as a seed is buried in the ground and refuses to remain lifeless, uh, something happens, a, a life comes from it, so will it be for those who die in Christ, that our dead bodies, whether buried or cremated, won't remain just a bunch of disbanded atoms, but will be made alive once more. And his point with the, the seed is to say that there will be continuity between this body of mind that dies, that goes into the ground, and the glorified body that will come. So when you sow an apple seed, you expect to get an apple tree, not an orange tree. The, the, the seed isn't the apple tree, but it contains within it what will come. 
there, there is continuity between the seed and the plant that will come from it. There is great comfort for us in this. You matter to God. You matter so much to God that you will be alive to him as you in the new creation. You will endure as you. Don't take that for granted. Many religions, say the Eastern religions, pantheistic religions, teach that any future is us being absorbed into some greater spiritual reality. You're not you as you are you now. But God says, no, 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 I love you. I made you, I put you together, body and soul, and I love you so much that you will endure in my new creation in a resurrected body. There's going to be continuity between this body and the next. But there's also going to be glorious discontinuity too. And this is what he draws out in a set of contrasts, starting verse 42. Again, making the point, when is the best life? It's not now. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. That is, this body, the body of the Christian, dies, goes into ground. It is perishable. Now, no matter how you're feeling about your body right now, there's, there's a very small number of us who might feel pretty good about it. Here's the thing. Gravity will win, right? What is currently firm will become floppy. Um, a, a rocking bod will give way to a dad bod. Likely you're going to have a few more atoms making up you as time goes on. But no matter how your body is or how you feel about it, our organs will fail, our minds deteriorate, depression strikes. Our bodies of this age are perishable and no prosperity preacher can change that. But they are raised imperishable. Never again to get sick, to slow down or to die. And I do something very simple. I'm a pretty simple guy. When parts of my body hurt, I just go, thank you, God, this is not my resurrection body. As I go to the physio, thank you, God. As I go to the dentist, thank you, God. As I have another month of no sleep, thank you, God, that this is not my resurrection sleep. The bodies that we exist in now are perishable. They will be raised imperishable. Verse 43, they are sown, they go down to the ground in dishonour, but they will be raised in glory. The state of our bodies in this age is lowly, is humble compared to what will be true of our resurrected bodies. Now, this is good news for all of us, especially of those who are very aware of how unimpressive our bodies are. And I don't just mean physically. The, 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 what makes me up is just, oh, it's just not that impressive. God promises that the resurrected you will be glorious. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Again, how many of us can so easily identify with weakness to mark our current existence? Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. 
You know, just as we start out in life completely dependent on another to put food in our mouths and deal with it when it comes out the other end, most of us, if we live long enough, end up in the same place, marked by weakness. But our resurrected existence is one that will be marked by power. Not to be wielded over others, but to be shared by all. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now notice here the contrast is not between material and immaterial. I think this is one of the problems we fail to understand the future rightly and and long for it the way that we should. We think that this existence is physical, it's real, it's tangible, I get it, but the future one sounds wispy, sounds ethereal, sounds... No, no, it's not immaterial versus... Sorry, it's not material versus immaterial. It's the natural age versus the spiritual age. It's the body that comes in the line of Adam versus the one that comes in the line of Christ. Notice there that it will be raised, verse 44, a spiritual body. We're not destined for a wispy, ethereal, Casper the friendly ghost kind of eternity, but rather a reuniting of our souls with our bodies which tells you something profound about what a human being is. There is something incomplete about us until we are restored with our bodies. Just like Jesus, who was raised from the dead, the first fruits, the the preview of what will be true for all. So that verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that's Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, the resurrected Jesus. Just capture the, the, the reality of the now versus the then. The resurrection completely swallows up the widest and deepest effects of fallen humanity in a fallen creation so that we will know life as God intended it, which has a physical experience of it. Paul is clear to the Corinthians and to us that our best lives come later. And his point in writing this is not just to state some facts about our future, but rather to make us hope-filled and homesick for it. He's not just writing some details, he wants to do something in us. He wants to move us towards hope towards longing, towards a holy discontentment to our current experience. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Oh, Lord, it's coming. Bring it. Bring it. In the resurrection of Jesus, a domino fell that set into motion an unstoppable chain of events that will end with us being glorified in resurrection bodies as God is all in all. And here's the thing about the resurrection. Often we can think of it or speak about it as the resurrection shows that God is powerful to recreate. No, no, no. You you don't need the resurrection to show that God is able to create a new world. You just need to look around. 
He's done it once. He's shown that he is powerful to create something from nothing. No, no, to create a new world, that, that's no biggie for him. Here's what the resurrection proclaims. It's that God is determined to make a new world. That, that in the resurrection of Christ, it is as good as done. And so we live now in hope that our best life is yet to come. So much of the New Testament describes the Christian life now as one of waiting, 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 of being patient, of enduring, of persevering. Christianity makes no sense if everything is yours now. In fact, we'd be pitied more than others. There are better ways to go and make more of a short life than Christianity. No, no. Christianity has it at heart a future. And Paul writes this to stir us towards it. But thirdly and finally and most quickly to apply it, the resurrection life means that life now, it's not the best life, but it's to be a different life. See, Paul drives home just how practical our future resurrection hope is for how we live in the present. Verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, that's language that actually initially throws back into the Old Testament, Isaiah, which um, is basically describing a group of people behaving in a way that is completely at odds with the future that's to come and a future that they have been told is coming. Rather than the ancient people of Israel repenting and turning to God because judgment is coming, they go, oh, well, let's just eat, drink, party, or make, make the most of this if we're, we're going to do completely at odds with what is to come. But that language in the Bible of, of eating and drinking is also um, um, symbolic of immoral living of living with ourselves as Lord, not the God of the universe, of determining our own purposes. See, today, Paul might have been happy to say, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then travel broadly, experience widely, for tomorrow we die. Climb that corporate ladder, be as high as you can, because tomorrow we die. Don't sit on the sidelines and watch other people achieve their dreams, for tomorrow we die. Live life as big as you can in your moment under the sun because, man, YOLO, you only live once. But, of course, his whole point, his whole argument is around the fact of the resurrection, of Jesus's, of ours, and therefore all that means. And it means the person who truly believes the gospel must live differently to those who don't. Those who have their trust in Jesus, which is to have their faith in a future hope, must live differently now to those who have no future hope. Which means two things, very quickly. It means that we will go without things that we might have otherwise embraced. We will go without things in this life we will pass up opportunities. We might even give things away. We will do that 
because the resurrection says we will never miss out. We will never miss out in the age to come. It means that now we will go without things because there's more to come. But secondly, the reverse is true. The resurrection means we will embrace things now that we otherwise wouldn't. That's Paul's point in verse 30. He says, as for us, speaking about himself, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. If I fought wild beasts with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? His point is, I, Paul, have not just gone without things. I've actually embraced great hardship and particularly hardship for the sake of Christ. Why would I do that if there is no promise to an end of that? and a reward into eternity. Why intentionally embrace pain if there is no resurrection? But Paul says there is a resurrection. And so any pain that we experience now, and particularly that on account of Christ, is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Brings great perspective. And so... Can I encourage you to ask this question of yourself today, in coming days? Maybe if you're watching the stream with other people and you're chatting about it afterwards, uh, share with each other this question. How would your life look any different if the resurrection weren't true? What would be different about your life if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead and you didn't have the hope of the same? And if you're not able to share anything, wow, that's a great warning to you, for us. Do you actually believe the gospel? And as you are able to share things, it's not in, not in the goal of going, look how good we're doing. It's to actually be encouraged and encourage each other that, yes, the resurrection changes our life and might encourage us to do that more and more together. Friends, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The resurrection says a lot about the future, yes, but it's more than that. It's to be proclaimed to call us to repentance. To repent of having lived as if there was no future return of Christ. Turn to him today, put your trust in him. To repent of having done that, but actually wanting our cake and to eat it too, as though it doesn't really make that big a difference. Repent. And the resurrection serves as the greatest, deepest comfort that our best life will come, is coming, as we are resurrected like Jesus and as we bear the image of the heavenly man. What a hope that we have to push on with yet another day, yet another week. Let's do that. Let's do that together. Let me pray. Our Father God, we, what a gospel you have given us. What a work you have done in Jesus. And not to those who deserved it, but to rebels, to enemies. And so we praise you. We thank you that with our faith in Christ, we are holy 
We are cleansed, we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified. We thank you for all that means about our future. Uh, might you afresh stir in us a longing for that day? Might that longing then energise us in all the details of our life right now, whatever the circumstances? Please, might we be ready and willing to give a reason for the hope that we have to those around us? Might we live in a way that causes people to ask, man, why do you live that way? Forgive us for being bound to the world. Free us, we ask, more and more. And we thank you that today is another day closer to seeing our risen Saviour Jesus and to experience all that you have in store for us in him. We pray it in his name. Amen.